Hello and welcome to Oh What A Time, the new history podcast that tries to decide if the past was as awful as it seems. I'm Ellis James. I'm Tom Crane. And I'm Chris Skull. And today in our first ever episode, we're going to be looking at fashion. From how to look mega snazzy in ancient Rome. To how curly your shoes should be in medieval Britain. And then finally, finally, the death of the Fez will be oh. revealed. Dealing with all of the big topics. <laughs> brave? Yes. Yes, very brave. <laughs> Foolhardy? Possibly. Possibly, we'll find out. And that is just the start, though, because coming up this series, we've got so many great subjects. We've got humour, marriage, sport, a life at sea, parenting, partying, pets, and any subject that you guys might want to throw at us. Yes, that's right. Do feel free to suggest a subject. So, here's how you can stay in touch with the show. You can email us at hello at owatertime.com and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at owatertimepod. Leave a review uh, in Latin, if you like, then we'll translate the funniest ones next week. Uh, If you're an academic or you just speak Latin because you went to grammar school in the 1940s, feel free to just knock one out. Not knock one out, that sounds awful. Um, (laughs) If you're really enjoying the podcast... (laughs) But do keep that to yourself. And review-wise, we're looking at five-star reviews, ideally, which in Latin would be a V-star review. See, I do know my stuff. Very, very nice. Uh, cue oldie-worldie title music. All right, this week we are talking about fashion. Tom, you own several items from the clothing brand Stone Island, which, as I frequently tell you, is off-brand. What do you think, Ellis? I would agree. First time I saw it, I was like, what are you... No, no! Yeah, it'd be, it'd be like if you if you turned up sort of dressed as a Viking or something. <laughs> oh. Well, I would say that it's also an Italian fashion brand. It's not just... Uh, people punching each other on the terraces. Yeah, but that has been completely commandeered by hard lads at football. <laughs> yeah, okay. Talk you know me. what they should do in the, Sto- the Stone Island shop, right by the checkout, they should have one of those machines you get on the seaside where you have to punch the thing. <laughs> and there should be, you have to get above 800 in order to be able to follow through with your purchase. Yeah, and then if you don't get above 800, you've got to go back, you've got to put all of the stuff back on the shelves, <laughs> on the racks. And everyone knows what's happened. This can't just be about me. Let's find out if you guys are you guys are you guys are you guys fashionistas? Are you into fashion? I'm looking forward to today's episode yeah. because, believe it or not, a bit embarrassing. I'm actually Wales's most fashionable man. <laughs> what? Yeah. I often walk down the street to applause. People are like, look at his trousers. Look at those bloody trousers. Two, two matching shoes. <laughs> two matching shoes. Socks on. He's got. He's got socks on. And I'm like, yes. What's your What's your nicest piece of clothing then, Ellis? What's the best thing you own? You can choose one thing. I I tend to wear a lot of the same polo shirt because I've discovered that this polo shirt brand really suits me, and I've 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 experimented with other other polo shirt brand brands, and they're all a little bit wrong for a variety of reasons. Okay. So Fred Perry, for instance, too boxy. Um. Farah, slightly too tight. I could scoot them, slightly too tight and bunches up the shoulders. Jojo, mama, amazing. baby, just right. <laughs> Gap kids, on the other hand. Fashion, that's today's episode. Um, should we uh, see what we're going to be talking about today? I'm going to be talking about 
ancient Roman fashion. That's what I'm going to be looking at. Uh, what about you guys? I am going to be talking about pointy shoes. The whole gamut of, of pointiness. <laughs> okay, great. And what, what about you, Chris? I'm talking about funny hats. Once again, I'm going to uh, take you into my time machine. So put, put on your seatbelts. Are they on? <laughs> yep. Come on. First. Make the sound of seatbelts going on. <laughs> Thank you very much. And you, Chris. Okay, great. And lock the door. <laughs> yep, fine. That's it's, it's got some, the time machine has central locking. Okay. Got a ch- child lock as well. I can't get out of my time machine. I'm in a booster and, seat. <laughs> and now put on your uh, your time machine hat, which uh, it, it's an interesting hat. This it, it changes to whatever type of hat is applicable to wherever whatever time you go to. It's a magic hat, so you don't look like an idiot. It's just whatever hat you require, it will be that hat when you get out of a time machine. It's okay, we're ready to go. If we're making a, a time machine, is it a TARDIS like? facility or are we going like DeLorean I don't know how to describe it what those those tiny cars that people drove around 2004 they were like only had two seats smart cars smart cars it's that that's how I'm imagining it it's like that but with lots of lights on it so in the smart car version of a time machine and we're plugged in belted up and the child locks are on so we're safe we're safe (laughs) and now we're pressing the button that says ancient Rome on it It's the, that's the only one. The, the, each, each, each of these different time machines takes you to a different place. So whew, there we are. We're in ancient Rome. So I'm going to talk to you about fashion in ancient Rome. First question. What do you think was the most popular outfit of the day in ancient Rome? What did people wear most of the time? Well, the way you've asked that, I'm going to assume it's not this, but let's get the conversation started. I'm going to say the toga. Yeah, sandals. Yeah, toga, sandals. But pants, I think. We will come to that. We'll find out. Do you need to get so sleazy so quickly, Chris? <laughs> I'm just thinking if uh, if I had to get dressed for ancient Rome, I would be. I'd think a lot about pants. Well, I actually do know this. The Romans a lot, often they did go commando, but they also used cloth to create a rudimentary pant. Basically, like a they would do that like as well. Mat, but like often they did mat. choose to go. Yeah, they 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 go flapping around. They because I part, partly because of the heat, I imagine. Um, although I always find I'm, I feel quite vulnerable when I'm not wearing pants. I'm much happier yeah. when I have pants I f- on. I feel vulnerable and stupid. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, you know, even put pants on, man. <laughs> Come on. Yeah. It's that attitude that that attitude that saw you voted Wales' best dressed man. <laughs> the frequency with which you have pants on. Oh, six times a week. Market leader. <laughs> in ancient Rome, if I was commando in a toga, I would constantly be fearful. I'm going to trap it, the toga in a door, and then you're naked in the street. Yeah, yeah. Or you get yeah. caught on the wheel of a cart <laughs> and then dragged to your that death. That must happen all the time. That was happening five times a day in ancient Rome. Well, you say that, Chris, but in fact, not that many people were rocking the toga back in ancient Rome. This is a bit of a falsity. Now, there's a reason behind this. There's a reason we believe that people wore togas. And that is because only really the wealthy wore them. And because ancient statues and works of art only really depict the wealthy, that's what we see. And Ah. that's why people believe that ancient Romans wore the toga all the time. And that's why it's ended up in the films and why it's become synonymous with that time. But in reality... They were only really worn for special occasions and only really owned, owned by the mega wealthy. So what That's did normal people wear? Trackies? Well, yes. We, trackies we, and sliders. <laughs> <laughs> that footballer's been interviewed after training. <laughs> 
<laughs> I would have I would have guessed I would have guessed the toga would be ubiquitous throughout society because it's basically a rag. It's just it's one long cloth, isn't it? It's not like complicated. Well, it's so close to nothing at all. No. Once again, Chris, a double whammy of uh, wrong answers. <laughs> God, you're sick. <laughs> yeah. This is humiliating. No, in fact, the yoga, the, the toga, sorry, was an unbelievably difficult thing to put on, incredibly long and really okay. hard to wear. So much so that people that owned togas employed a special slave or had a special slave called a vestiblicus. That's how you pronounce it. Uh, and it was their role to put your toga on. It was such a complicated piece of clothing to put on. You had a specific person in your household who would get you into it in the morning. I could do that. But also, yeah. it's not, it, the hours are going to be fairly uh, flexible. Well, not flexible, but they're going to be fairly uh, easy, aren't they? The toga hours, you'd have, you'd have to do it first thing in the morning. Yeah. yeah. And then the rest of the day is yours. How would, you, how would you feel on a basic level about someone as an adult, getting you dressed in the morning. I think the benefit of it would be you would be you'd be faster in the mornings. I think if you knew there was a guy there yeah. waiting to get you dressed, you're not going to sit on your phone on the Guardian having a poo for unnecessarily long in the morning. I think it might speed your day up. Do you know what though? Having acted and things, it is amazing how the costume department, when you're acting in a sitcom or something, they they will they won't. They will try and do as much for you as pos. So, say when you're um, when they're changing the position of the cameras, for instance, when they're turning round, and costume and makeup are looking at you, they will they they, they will straighten your tie and do all that kind of stuff, stuff that you definitely could do yourself. And occasionally, <laughs> and you very loudly make that clear as well. Yeah, oh, yeah I'm yeah, always I, doing I it. I know how to do a tie. <laughs> And then you try to show everyone, and it turns out you don't. You peanut yourself. Yeah, it's in, it's incredible, and they will straighten your cap and all that kind of stuff. And how does that make you feel when that's happening? I love it, <laughs> <laughs> and I always think this is me. <laughs> I'm actually quite pro this. I agree. I think it could be quite a nice thing. You think I'm not even have to think about that. I'll just stand there. Someone will choose the outfit for me, pop yeah. it on, and I'm out about my day. I would prefer to put my own pants on. Yes. And socks. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, yeah, yeah. Maybe you can have a little bell when the pants are on, you ring it, and that's when they all come in. <laughs> the team, the team. I'm ready for you. So, let's get into the details of what this, cloth, uh, what this clothing all was. So, the material of most things at that time, including togas, unless you're very, very wealthy, most clothing in ancient Rome, and this panics me actually, was made of wool. <laughs> Okay. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Rome in in the heat of summer. Yeah. It is panic-inducingly hot. And the idea of wearing essentially a woolen blanket... Yes, good shout. ...makes yeah. me feel really stressed. In the pre-deodorant age. In the pre-deodorant age. <laughs> oh, man, do you know what? I never really thought about the pre-deodorant age. Oh, that is not going to be nice. They'll have used something weird, though, won't they? Like a sheep's head or something. Or something that you rub on your underarm. <laughs> yeah, the pre the pre redox pre deodorant age. They yeah. were pre redoxians weren't they, the Romans? So that's on the top half occasionally for special ceremonies and stuff. Chris, you mentioned sandals, and I'm afraid that is also wrong. Ancient Romans wore converse all stars. No, they didn't. They wore. <laughs> They only actually wore sandals in the house. That's what house. That's what they were for. Out and about, they wore boots. But in the house, they'd wear sandals, but not out and about. And they even wore them with socks, like a sort of an embarrassing uncle. 
like a dad at a garden centre. Like a dad at a garden centre, yeah. <laughs> Normcore is what they used to call that. I always thought the ancient Romans were quite a cool bunch. You're quite advanced, sexy, you know, living a real life of hedonism. I didn't imagine them sort of walking around the house in sandals and socks. Yeah, that's really changed my opinion of the Romans. <laughs> oh, wow. Sandals yeah. and socks. What a shame. You and don't see, there's not that scene in Gladiator, is there, where he's sort of pulling on his socks and then his sandals. How <laughs> <laughs> that changes the dynamic of how heroic and cool he is. Yeah. Because also, yeah, boots and woolen clothes, very warm. Ancient Rome in the summer, oh my God. Absolutely. So woolen top, socks and sandals underneath. Uh, and they go out and about. Now, you asked Ellis, what is the more everyday clothing? Okay, so the sort of the, the equivalent of the jeans and t-shirt in ancient Rome is something called the tunica, which is basically a sleeveless garment which is cut off at the knee, uh, and then your head popped through the top, kind of a bit like a poncho, I suppose, really, okay. without sides. But what really mattered in ancient Rome wasn't the style of that garment; it was the colour that you that you right that it was dyed that showed your standing and, and basically how much money you had to spend. And they used... A little Stone Island badge on the side of the... T- little t- Stone t- Island badge, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. But they used various things. They used um, wine, salt, shells, mosses, lentils, mushrooms, vinegar, wild cucumbers, nuts, barley, malt, plants, bark, roots, berries, flowers. Um, slightly less pleasant, this is how they got the colouring. They used sheep urine and insects as ways of changing the colour. Uh, and basically, depending on what you could afford, that would kind of affect the colour that you would you would get the insect thing i think i'd rather not know and the sheep's urine i think i've identified if that was i'd rather just not be told about that i think again it would be the smell if 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 it had stopped smelling it would be far more palatable to me yeah. um i think my favorite coat for instance if someone told me, oh, you know, prior to you buying that in the shop, we'd actually dipped it in, in goat's piss. I'd be like, well, you know, I've had it for six months now and I've worn it, I've worn it on a couple of nights out and people have remarked how nice it is. So you know, I, I think I could, I think I could, it would be getting it straight from the shop with it still smelling of fresh goat's piss would be, would, would be what I would find problematic. If it wasn't insect or uh, goat's piss that you were going for, there was one colour that, um, was held in more value than any other colour, and that was purple. Okay. So purple was made um, using s- these shells of sea snails and um, crushed up, and it was known as Tyrian purple. And it was a colour worn by the emperor. In fact, in later years, laws were passed that only the emperor could wear purple. But there was an initial period where could be worn by people if they could afford it. But it was so expensive, this stuff. I, I'm going to tell you how this, this is mind-blowing, okay? So to buy a cloth which was coloured purple in the market would cost you 150,000 denarii, which is the same price in the market as an adult lion. That's, like, that's the equivalent. <laughs> that's like they've got the equivalent of... <laughs> I'm imagining... Husbands coming back from the market and saying to their partners, yeah, you know I said I was going to buy that cloth. I found something even better. They <laughs> <laughs> hear a large roar from the garden. <laughs> what have you done, Steve? <laughs> so sorry. <laughs> but yeah, 150,000 denarii. To put that into perspective, okay, 
The maximum daily wage for a farm labourer was 25 denarii. So to afford one of those, it would have been 16 and a half years of non-stop work. 365 days a year. 16 and a half years of non-stop work at the maximum wage for a farmhand to afford one piece of this purple cloth. That's crazy. Would it be worth it? Well... For another podcast that I do, the Social Distance Sports Bar, we have pod colours, yellow and purple. So we sell uh, Social Distance Sports Bar football shirts. So on our gigs, they just look like very, very wealthy Romans. (laughs) (laughs) That's incredible. I know what would happen. I would work for 16 and a half years. I get my purple cloth. I put it on and I'd immediately spill something down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And I'd ruin it. You're going down the, the market, Chris, okay? There's a line on one side, the same price as a piece of cloth. What are you going for? Let's be realistic here. What are you going for? In a weird way, the line is more practical. Scare off yeah. your enemies. You know, you've worked 16 and a half years on the farm, get a lion, chase out the, the owner. It's your land now. What are they going to do? More to the point, Chris, you get the lion, you go back to the market the next day, I guarantee they'll give you whatever cloth you ask for. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I will let him off the lead. Hello. I love the colour purple, and I've got a lion, so uh, there's only one way this is going to work out, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Do you remember when they dug up the... I say, do you remember when they dug up... But this happened in, like, Victorian era. They dug up the old moat at the Tower of London and found in it the bones of lions and zebras and all. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so when they're... You know, you just mentioned they're selling lions. The guys who get the lions to sell... They're brave brave slash foolhardy lads. That's... uh, that is a tough gig. Well, there's, there's an idiotic YouTuber, and I can't remember his name, but he bought a tiger cub the other day. And he had the, uh, the, the tweet went viral, and it was him sitting in the front seat of his sports car with his tiger cub on the passenger seat. <laughs> As if they were just going to go down to the shell carriage to, to buy some petrol. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, yeah, I've bought, I've bought a tiger cub. I am different to you. And... Um, and I think Mike the reaction think, was, you're an idiot, yeah? Yeah, I think Mike Tyson had a tiger. It's, I think he did, yeah. I just do... I, I am very, very happy with ti- lions and tigers staying where they're happiest yeah. in their natural habitat. I'm fine with that. If you're honest, Ellis, when I lived at Claire's sister's house with Claire before we bought our first flat, we were there for six months waiting for this place to complete i lived with a cat for six months and i found that a bit much yeah yeah it's like a like normal it. cat <laughs> <laughs> it really did my head in and it stressed me out a lot of the time it would come and pour on my chest the idea of yeah. waking up a half six and the lion on my chest and it wants its milk <laughs> yeah whatever a lion eats <laughs> i think it's more meat based <laughs> meat based it, it wants to eat my head this 400 pound jungle lion going where's the whole milk yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm a lion. Need, I'm going to need more than a little bowl, mate. Let me tell you a little story about this cat I live with. This is one of my favourite things ever. Kate's cat was it got quite overweight, and the uh, they had to take it to the vet, and the vet said you need to improve its diet. It needs to eat better. It needs to eat less food. It's, it's dangerously overweight. The day after that, we were sat in the living room, and it came through the cat flap holding a pan of chocolate. <laughs> insane <laughs> I had no idea where it got it from well he had his own independent sense of in source of income <laughs> <laughs> a 
and a latte. <laughs> Remarkable. Uh, was it legal down the road? It must have just nicked it from the bakery, but yeah. Oh. Come on, mate, you've already got a rep. Got that from a train station uh, before the commute. <laughs> A co- copy of the Metro. Shocker. <laughs> a cup of coffee. So, once you got that you'd bought this cloth, all you were left with, although you paid 150,000 denarii for it, it was, it was just a big bit of cloth. That's what it was. And it was considered the role of Roman women to then turn that into clothing for the household. That's what happened. And even aristocratic, aristocratic women were expected to oversee this work, basically. So you bring the cloth home, your wife or um, one of the females in the household would then turn that into clothes for you. Um, there's one final thing that happened, had to happen, of course, which is you had to keep your clothes clean. So you'd spent all this money, you bought your toga, you bought your sackcloth, you bought whatever it was, and you need to keep it clean. And there was one way they dealt with this, is one word, which was uh, urine. That's how they kept their, their clothes clean, to take us back to that wonderful stuff again. Uh, which, is, of course, it's full of ammonia, just like modern cleaning products. That's the idea. But it, the way they collected it was bizarre. So there were huge pots that lined the streets in ancient Rome. And when people were just going about their day, they would just stop and piss in the pot in front of everyone. <laughs> so just down the streets, there were pots everywhere. So you'd urinate in the pot in front of everyone. And then you'd just get on with your day. And then at the end of the day, these pots would be collected and then taken to the laundry, poured into the bath there. The clothes would be chucked in. Someone who worked at the laundrette would then stamp over your clothes and then give your clothes back to you. Right. Um, Yeah. Let's get to the pot thing, the feeling on that. What's your... uh... Well, as as men, we've all gone to busy rhinos at football matches or gigs, for instance. Yeah. Um, We together, that doesn't bother me. My own urine doesn't bother me. And the urine of my children doesn't bother me. It's the collective urine of strangers is what yeah. bother, bother, bothers me. So if I could, if I could provide enough of my own urine, I would find that far more acceptable than the urine of, you know, people who live down the street who I who I don't know by name. For some reason, it's other people's urine is what. Like my son, my son, my son weed on me the other day, and I was very very sanguine about it. But if, if a bloke called Mark had weed on me, I'd be like, mate, what's, what's happening here? <laughs> the collective urine of strangers is yeah. a good name for like a book on ancient Rome. Isn't yeah. It? Right. If I was going to, you know, if I had to go out and collect urine that I would use, the last place I would be looking is street urine. Just, you know, <laughs> yeah. You go Royal Opera House, maybe. Yeah. Or you could pay someone to sort of eat and drink really yeah. well and really yeah. sort of clean way an asparagus ban obviously <laughs> city-wide asparagus ban yeah no sugar puffs for you i'm afraid so that's what happened they pick up the pots they take them back and then someone would stamp over your urine soaked clothes i don't mind putting your toga on i don't mind being one of those people but yeah i do not i don't i don't want my job to be working with the collective urine urine of strangers yeah nothing there you go well that is clothing in ancient rome Okay, now let's move on to pointy shoes. <laughs> now, in the 1960s, the winkle picker toe appeared on British shoes. So the, the Stones used to wear them, the Beatles used to wear them, especially in the early part of their career. So the exaggerated point contrasted with the rounded edge of the Teddy Boy favourite, the Brothel Creeper. So each time there's been a 60s revival since the original, uh, the winkle picker 
Booters Returned. They were very big during the uh, indie sleaze era in the 2000s. Um, right. A lot of, especially a lot of the English bands used to wear winkle pickers. But they're not a unique fashion invention of, of post-war youth culture. In fact, the, the, the winkle picker deliberately evoked... I, I had no idea about this. The, the winkle picker deliberately evoked a late medieval fashion phenomenon, one that so vexed the authorities they issued <laughs> fines and edicts, all to bring toe points back to a normal size. In medieval Britain? Yeah. So, um, not in the 60s, obviously. They could, they yeah, of could, course, could wear yeah. what you so want to. You'd be, you'd be fined if your, t- your shoe was too pointy. Yeah. So, the, the grandfather winkle picker was a cracko. Or the Poulain shoe, examples of which can be seen throughout medieval art and in the archaeological records from the 1100s onwards. So the names imply a Polish origin, perhaps in the city of Krakow. Uh, The point also gave rise to the name Pike. Now, the first to turn extremely pointy shoes into a fashion statement were the members of the French nobility, and they quickly spread this habit to other aristocrats across the continent, notably their counterparts in 14th century England where more traditional observers thought Krakow's to be an imported vice. So although initially popular with men, the style was eventually unisex. And if you've, if you've ever seen pictures of the French nobilities and their, French nobility and their pointy shoes, they're so pointy, like hilariously pointy. <laughs> so the style also had an impact on military costume and metal points added to armoured shoes, which has a very practical purpose, isn't it? Yes. Kicking yeah. someone. Kicking someone with a very, very pointed metal <sighs> shoe. I mean, that's going to cause some damage, even if you just get them in the shins. Oh. So, can I ask a quick question? Yeah. Which is, so we, we, I think we can assume that the toes are, are ending quite early in the point, aren't they? Yeah. So I don't know if you've ever worn shoes that are too big. It's a nightmare to walk around in them. Yes. Yeah. Like, for instance, for example, I remember as a child wanting to get and get something out in the garden, but I can't find my shoes and putting my dad's shoes on. Oh, yeah, and get, yeah, yeah. And then you get such an effort, clumping, like two steps <laughs> to go one step forward, basically. Almost. It's a nightmare. It's, it's as hard as when shoes are far too small for you. Yeah, absolutely. However, I said that that made sense. When the pointed shoes or metal points were tested in battle, such as during the Crusades, they were found to be cumbersome and even counterproductive. Ah. So the points and pikes were then uh, made detachable. Away from the battlefield, though... Points could extend, get this, as much as 24 inches. Imagine having a... Tw- <laughs> that like a, a tw- but is that a tw- just like having a dagger on the end of your shoe? Yeah, but it, it would be so uncomfortable. So imagine this, you're walking around and you've got a 24-inch point yeah. on the end of your shoe. I mean, you'd have to... People you- wouldn't know you're entering a room about like 30 <laughs> seconds before you come in. <laughs> Also, like skis. Com- it's almost like skis. Also, a common yeah, like a common way for a fight to start in my hometown when I was a teenager was to be accused of standing on someone's foot at the bar. Oh yeah, <laughs> I forgot that was a thing, wasn't it? So you stand on, on someone's f- foot or someone's <laughs> shoe at the bar, and then suddenly it's like the Wild West, and there's punches being thrown and tables being kicked over. If you were wearing twenty-four, <laughs> twenty-four-inch points, you'd be like. You're standing on my toe, mate, but in fairness, I brought this on myself. <laughs> I, I apologise to someone down the other end of the bar. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Listen, 
It's a busy pub. It's New Year's Eve. We're all standing on each other's shoes. Okay. <laughs> if someone kicks off, it's going to be chaos in here. So it's fine. Um, 24 inches, causing the wearer all sorts of problems when mm. walking. Uh, Rye commentators pointed to a plague of bunions, which I suffer from. Thank you. Lovely medieval nice. foot disease I've got. Um, to get around the impracticalities, the points were tied up. The undersides were sometimes decorated as a further statement of a fashionista. So the, you would you could you could um, kind of roll up the point, yeah, I've and seen unfurl the, it when you, you when you get to the party, basically. Yeah, yeah. Maybe when you're sitting down, and then you would then you would tie it up again if you go into the bar. Got to get some cans, because okay. <laughs> um, I've seen them sort of tied to the to the leg, which again appears to me as something that must be very uncomfortable, but still. Uh, in the 15th century, the battle against the Krakow or the Krakow uh, began, culminating in the sumptuary law passed by Edward IV in 1463, a law which imposed restrictions on the length of the pike for the poorest in society. So that is anyone below the status of a lord, no more than two inches. Wow. Okay. That seems, that seems reasonable. I wouldn't be gutted by that. <laughs> I'd be waiting for that law to come in. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what an absolute relief. Yeah. Oh, gutted. That's for the best. I think that's for the best. I wonder if it made taking your shoe off easier or harder, whether pulling on the end of this long point would mean they just slip off really, really easily, or whether it just makes it a nightmare. It'd be very easy. It'd be very easy for someone else to take your shoes off, wouldn't it? I have a pair of high tops that I find so hard to get off that I routinely break into a sweat when I'm doing it. (laughs) I find it really stressful. And as soon as I'm trying to get them off, I immediately feel claustrophobic. I feel, yeah. and I get to the point when I'm about to take them off, and I'm like, I need these off me. I feel panic <laughs> that they're still on me. But I start to sweat. As anyone who's met you will attest, you will do anything for fashion, won't you, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There is, n- there is no feeling uncomfortable enough to stop you from looking fashionable. <laughs> they're thigh high Converse All Stars. Thigh high. In Scotland, there was no obvious effort to ban uh, crackos or crackos. Um, as there was in England. In fact, there may even have been some distaste for the style because it was so popular south of the border. But given the associations between shoes and clothes, restrictive sumptuary laws passed by the Scottish Parliament in the 15th century no doubt had an impact anyway. For instance, in 1458, it was ruled that no labourers or husbands wear any colour except grey or white on work days, And on holy wow. days, only light blue, green or red, and their wives likewise. Wow. Wow. Grey or white. But you, as someone who wears identical polo shirts throughout his week, would you well, not, different colours. not part of you quite like that? Different colours, Monday okay. Maroon Day. Tuesday is a dark blue. Uh, Wednesday, turquoise. So you had to wear grey or white when you are at work. Well, why wear your finest pointy shoes when the only, when the only colour you're allowed to don is grey or white? Yeah. That's I true. mean, the shoes really are going to pull focus, aren't they? Another concern with these pointy shoes, I'm imagining that period to be quite a boggy time. Yeah. It's quite yeah. heavy peat and mud. It's not like tarmac roads. You're kind of... So you're going along with these shoes which are twice the length of your foot. <laughs> Maybe they are doubling up as skis. Maybe that is the... You know, it's so boggy and muddy. <laughs> Essentially, if you're heading into town, activate the ski function. <laughs> off you go. I love it. Heading into town as if you're as if you're going on the Raz. You got a packet of fags. You got you got a wallet full of cash. You're like, let's let's go let's for a drink. This. 
Okay, when the French introduced a sumptuary law in 1470, also imposing restrictions on the length of the point, shoes quickly became more regularly towed. Even before 1480, the Krakow style was no more. Of course, though, unusual decoration of a shoe's toe has never been entirely restricted to points, as the famous pom-pom of the Greek Tsaruchi uh, illustrates. But it is in China with the upturned toe popular in the Ming Dynasty, 1368 to 1644 AD, that we find an echo of the medieval European enthusiasm for oddly toed footwear, as in Europe too, the undersides of the upturn were often decorated for further effect. Now, the thing is, having seen fashions change in my lifetime because I'm 42 and I remember some of the stuff I thought was very cool when I was 10 and when I was 20 Mm. when I was 30 and eventually obviously you kind of get into a groove and your clothing style doesn't really change that much I don't think (laughs) Um, but for instance when skinny jeans came in you know 20 years ago or longer now because I was very very heavily invested in the boot cut I thought you'll never get me wearing those. They look stupid. And then within two years, the boot cut just looks like a mad person's decision. And um, it's like the sort of stonewashed jeans that were very popular in the 1980s that you see young people wearing now. Because when I was young, they were the, the, the least cool item of clothing imaginable. When I see like a really trendy 23 year old woman wearing those trousers, I think, Love, you've lost your mind. <laughs> look, take a look in the mirror. <laughs> You're going to regret about, this. It's, about it's, seven years ago, I owned a pair of blue stonewashed jeans and I wore them to the last leg and Josh uh, Widdicombe ripped the piss out of me, okay? I defended myself to the high heavens. Then in the green room afterwards... I was still trying to defend myself, at which point Alex Brooker's dad walked in wearing identical <laughs> jeans. <laughs> and all arguments collapsed. <laughs> I would describe it as the one thing I didn't need to happen. <laughs> I, re- I remember uh, in the 90s watching... Do you remember Heaven 17? Yeah. They were on Top of the Pops on Friday night, I think it was. And they were singing Temptation. And they were all dressed up in, like, leather S&M gear. And I... (laughs) And I remember thinking to myself, this will never not be cool. (laughs) And now look at what you're wearing right now, Chris. We can see you in your full leather... Tuesday morning. The listeners listeners don't know what you're wearing. We can only see his eyes. He looks like he's in cameo. Big leather cod piece. <laughs> uh, so I remember thinking, I know tastes have changed over time, but this is yeah. a timeless look. This is cool <laughs> right now, and it will always yeah. be cool. It yeah, wasn't. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't even cool then. In a in about nineteen ninety, my cool friend, he had big, sort of highlighter pen, luminous yellow and pink um, Bermuda shorts. Uh, a t-shirt with a cartoon of a duck wearing those shorts and with shades on with a surfboard um, like smoking a cigarette and then he had luminous um, 
yellow highlighter sort of pen colour uh, sock on his left foot, and then on his right foot it was it was luminous yellow. Uh, it was luminous pink. There's again, and then he had shades and. <laughs> One arm of the shades was sort of luminous pink, and the other was luminous yellow. It was very, very luminous. And I thought he looked so great. <laughs> and like he'd come, he'd come over to play or something. And then when his parents picked him up, I remember as soon as he left, my dad said, "What was he wearing?" And I said, "Dad, that that's fashion. It will always be like this." <laughs> that will You're... never not look good, Dad. <laughs> You're bragging claim to fame that you are Wales' most fashionable boy is coming yeah it was him impressive it was him find out the context around it <laughs> a boy who was dressed like a what are those things you like a stabilo boss highlighter with. Ben he <laughs> <laughs> was so luminous everything was luminous everything his trainers were luminous and he had all these T-shirts of different animals surfing. He didn't surf. He'd have been surfing in his life. <laughs> for Pembrokeshire Council. Apparently, the only, oh. the, only man made, the only man made things you can see from space are the Great Wall of China and that boy's outfit. That's it. The only two things that you can see from... But that's the thing. But I'm now old enough to accept that we're all yeah. going to look back on how we... Like, Absolutely. when I was a student, I thought I looked good. And when I look back at the pictures, I just look, I look just daft, just stupid and daft. <laughs> yeah, so there we have it. Pointy shoes for the ages. Do you know what I thought is a cool hat? The fez. If you turn up to a party in a fez, <laughs> people know you're a laugh. Yeah. Chris is here. <laughs> here he is. Fun's about to start. You're either a laugh or, or possibly racist. <laughs> <laughs> One of the two. But either way, you can't wait to find out. Right, yeah. Do you know how Tommy Cooper... The, you know Tommy Cooper's obviously probably most famous for wearing affairs. Yeah. The rumour yeah. the rumor was in the Second World War when he was uh, serving, he was performing his act and he, he stole it off a waiter in Cairo just before he, he went on stage. That is a rumour. There's no agreed upon line, but the Fez actually has a history. I like w- it. Way, way prior to Tommy Cooper. Uh, so I'm going to talk about the role of the Fez in the Ottoman Empire. In the early 19th century, the Ottoman preference was for a serik, which looks like a turban, uh, as, and it was given as a kind of a, it was seen as a badge of authority. But eventually, in the early 19th century, it gave way to the Fez, driven primarily by the process of modernisation embarked upon by Sultan Mahmud II who ruled the Ottoman Empire from 1808 until his death in 1839. And it was really to mark a contrast to his predecessor, uh, the illustrious Suleiman the Magnificent, who ruled in the 16th century, and was always seen depicted, was always depicted wearing a very large white turban. So he really wanted to ch- change people from the turban to the fez as a way of seeing, of kind of modernising uh, uh, society in the Ottoman oh, Empire. Yeah. What do they call that? A flagpole policy. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be big. People are going to remember me for this. Yeah. It picks yeah. the hill to die on. They remember Shaw Star. They remember increased investment in the NHS and the switch know. from the turban to the face. The minimum wage. <laughs> it's quite a decision to lead with a hat-based policy as your major <laughs> thing. Let's say as, as Starmer tries to come into government at the next election, if his main thing is trying to ban the flat cap. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or whatever. I want Britain to be a modern baseball cap-orientated society. 
Sultan Mahmud II, he banned the wearing of turban in 1829 at court. The fez was the instituted headdress in its place. And obviously, yeah. people have pointed out that there was a, a visual similarity between the fez and the recently developed top hat, which was running riot through oh. European fashion in the 1820s. It's so impractical. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't when, even appear comfortable, a top hat. No, when horse is the, the dominant form of transport, you're bobbing around. That top, you, yeah. you know, your centre of gravity is all over the place. It doesn't really keep the sun out of your eyes either, does it? No, it's completely... It doesn't do that. Like, the peak is so small. At best, yeah. if you're hiding a rabbit, it's useful. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's great It's great for the magician community. <laughs> Everything else. Actually, on that, I mean, the turban obviously has a use in terms of shielding you from the sun. It does that. The, 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 what is the fez actually offering, really, in a very hot Moroccan climate? It only really covers a tiny part of your head, doesn't it? Yeah, leaves a lot of your head exposed. It's not it hasn't got a peak, so it doesn't shade you from the sun. It's it's like the it's the worst hat for that weather, isn't it? Surely, what's it doing? Keep a cushion to that. Well, I think oh, that's true. Yeah. It seems like its primary purpose was as a symbol of modernity uh, in the Ottoman okay. Empire in the, in the 19th century. But interestingly, it quickly became when kind of it, the Ottoman Empire encountered with greater frequency Europeans, the fez became rather than a symbol of the kind of, of uh, modernity, became an Orientalist motif, a stereotype. And it was see, uh, quickly seen among Europeans that the fez was kind of old-fashioned. So it instantly, uh, was, although it was like created as a sign of modernity, it quickly became, yeah, old-fashioned, a stereotype. I think you can see that. I mean, even now when you think of Morocco, it's one of those sort of slightly lazy images that people will go to in advertising or there's kind of nightclubs that are the- like, you know, themed around that sort of stuff. It's always the fez. It's always the thing that's and it, that with a little tassel from the top of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. So the, the fez became seen as old-fashioned when Kamal Ataturk embarked on his own programme of modernisation. After the First World War, he launched his own hat revolution, banning the fez oh. in 1925. So once again, another leader coming to the forefront instituting a hat ban. 1925, you've got, you know, it's only seven years after the First World War ended, six years after the Treaty of Versailles. Britain is in the middle of an economic downturn. There's so much going on to think of. The Wall Street crash is on the horizon. It's not, yeah. not, not far away. No, not far away. So much hat legislation. <laughs> Getting bogged down. Why are they so hat upset? Getting bogged down in hat legislation. <laughs> this is what happens at a time when people didn't have Netflix and things to entertain themselves. They just become <laughs> obsessed with things like hats because there's nothing to do back then. <laughs> but one, uh, in terms of hat evolution, an interesting cultural exchange happened between the Ottoman Empire and other parts of Europe in the 19th century, and that was the creation of the smoking cap. It was a tasseled soft hat. Uh, which was intended to be worn indoors as part of loungewear alongside the ubiquitous smoking jacket. The idea was to avoid carrying the smells of tobacco smoke and offending the noses of women. So well-to-do men would don ah. a completely different costume when smoking. So you had the jacket, which we're all familiar with, Hugh Hefner, but also a special smoking cap. Oh, oh wow. Yeah. Uh, one of the most famous... I wish you saw that outside, outside, like, pubs nowadays when people go out for a fag, everyone's, they're changing into a new outfit to do it. <laughs> I would be so up for like, that. You, you, know, you know the smokers because they're all wearing sort of purple 
<laughs> smoking jackets and their, their hats. They put on as they go out and take off again as they come back into the pub. One of the most fa- famous proponents of the smoking cap was uh, Italian revolutionary Giuseppe Garibaldi, who sported his, his smoking Ooh. cap in public, you might remember. Uh, I'm sure I've seen pictures of him wearing a smoking cap. Uh, often smoking caps were made and gifted like mixtapes between partners uh, and so had elaborate patterns sewn onto the fabric. Samuel Beaton, husband of the rather more famous Mrs. Beaton of cookery books and household manuals, included patterns in his uh, young English in her Young Englishwoman magazine. Patterns for, for making your own smoking making hat. Making your own smoking hat. They were in vogue wow. uh, from the 1840s until the end of the century, long enough to feature in Sherlock Holmes stories, although by then they appeared on the heads of slightly doddery individuals. Uh, yeah. The smoking cap. The, the death knell for the smoking cap in America came uh, in the wake of the Civil War when the renegade Confederate President Jefferson Davis was a very well-known smoking cap wearer. By the end of the century, uh, it was no surprise that Americans thought of the smoking cap as an old-fashioned apparel. Uh, and similar, similarly, also fell away the nightcap. Yeah, I... I, I've I've never known anyone to wear a nightcap, not even the very elderly. It, I associate <laughs> no. it with a, a, a ladybird copy of Wee Willy Winky that I had when I was a little kid. <laughs> Scrooge, Scrooge, when you see yeah, he's wears a nightcap. I, I suppose, uh, yeah, central heating would have killed off the um, <laughs> the nightcap to, to insulation to extent. I'm a side sleeper. In which case, where is the nightcap going? Is it going over my ear on the side of my head? Yeah. Like, genuine question, because I, re- I, sli- I lie on the side. So am I wearing the hat on the side of my head? What am I, where am I going? Of course, it's not going to go on top, because I'm sleeping on my side. Well, it was like How a sort work? Of, it was like a long... Or did it go over the top like a sock? Is that what it yeah, was like? Yeah, yeah, it was like, okay, like a right, big okay, head fine. sock. We're okay, then. We're okay. <laughs> <laughs> head sock. It's not a sexy look, is it? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's not a look that's leading to much... No, no, no. Sort of passionate lovemaking with your partner, is it? Surely. You knew, you, know, you, you, you would know that if your partner was up for it, because after yeah. you've brushed your teeth, you'd go into the bedroom and they wouldn't have their uh, yeah. night, nightcap on. Nightcap on just yet. The nightcap would be dangling over the, ed- the end of Coquettish. the bed, wouldn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you think, I get it. Uh, <laughs> I know what's going on here. That nightcap is full of Johnnies. <laughs> Wow, so that was that was then. Then people stopped wearing them. I want once again. Who knows? That might come back. Heating bills are rising. Yeah, of course. You got to keep yourself warm. And also, fashion, especially over the last sixty years or so, has proved to be so cyclical. I just can't deny that anything is never going to come back in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, we might. I'll meet be you for a pint in about a year's time, and you'll be wearing shoes with a sixteen-inch point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and a, and a Chris nightcap. will be in a nightcap and S and M gear. <laughs> Straight, borrowed directly from Heaven heaven 17. I'll be in a purple toga claiming I'm the emperor. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be great. Sounds quite fun, actually, to be honest. It does sound quite fun. So that is fashion. What a what you know? What a world we've lived in. What a um, you know strange and never ending. Anyway, I'm going to put my uh, luminous duck holding a surfboard T-shirt on now to go to the shops. (laughs) Yeah, need to buy some milk and butter and eggs. Pretty cool. So that's it. That's fashion. Thank you so much for listening to our first ever episode. Tom, if people want to get in touch with the show, how can they do it? They can email us on hello at ohwhatatime.com or they can follow us on Insta 
or Twitter on Oh What A Time Pod. And if you have any subjects that you would like us to talk about, any historical subjects, do send them in. And also any crazy historical facts that you think we've missed, send those across as well. Yes, great shout. And don't forget uh, to leave us a five-star review. Uh, other podcasters usually say this point because it helps um, people who might not have heard the podcast uh, to find it. Um, that, that, that's true in a way, but really, let's face it, I need the validation. Um, there's some sort of, I don't know what, some damage occurred in childhood. I don't know why. I don't know what. My parents were very good to me. I need the validation of complete strangers, people I'll never meet. Um, it, I'm, a, I'm a confidence player. I always have been. I need an armor on the shoulder. And to just see five to 600 five-star reviews, it helps me sleep at night. Um, it improves my relationship. Uh, it improves my parenting. Um, also... If this podcast becomes very successful, it would really help Tom out because he's overstretched himself on the mortgage. (laughs) Also, our producer said something about algorithms, which we don't understand, (laughs) but clearly it matters. So please do leave us a review and also join us next week where we'll be back for yet more historical fun. Thank you so much for joining us on episode one. We'll see you guys soon.